the worst thing in the world would be to spend your life studying about God mm. and to never know God. Mm. So Maastricht comes off in throughout, if you read him carefully and repetitively, um, it's a, there's always an urgency to the need to understand God. And to that end, Maastricht is not only urgent to call people to Christ, but he's urgent to, to encourage Christians to take comfort. Mm. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Real quick, before we begin this episode, listen to the end for updates on our Santa Ana Reformed Church Plant efforts and our upcoming Bible study on the Book of Judges. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. Today is a book club episode. We're gonna we have talk Dr. Todd Rester, and he is going to be talking about his seven volume series here on theoretical practical theology. It is about Petrus Van Maastricht. And it's also edited by Joel Beek. And again, it's a seven-volume series published by Reformation Heritage Books. And it's a very unique series that we're going to be talking about. It's a long-awaited series. Um, But before we jump in with this interview with Dr. Rester, just a reminder on some show notes. We have some links One of them is to the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Those are other like-minded podcasts out there. If you enjoy our content, you probably will enjoy some of these other shows. And then there's also a few links to find a church near you, a local Reformed church finder. So check those out, as well as a link from Reformation Heritage Books, where you can get any or all seven books of this volume and learn more about Maastricht. And so without further ado, we'll jump right in and talk to the the person that translated these seven volumes, Dr. Todd Rester. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Dr. Rester. Peter, Nick, thanks for being, letting me be here. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. If, uh, If people, if you guys haven't listened to our episodes, we had one about a month and a half ago with Dr. Rester and one of his colleagues, Dr. Coleman from Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. But he is the uh, associate professor of church history at Westminster Theological Seminary. And he's also working on these seven volumes. And we've got the first, well, I mean, by the time this episode comes out, the first three volumes will be out there. But we've got more volumes. But even kind of kind of on my own thing. So I, I'm, I'm guessing if people, if people know who Maastricht is, it's because they've seen this little blurb from Edwards saying he's the best systematic theologian even better than Turton and people are probably gasping it's like oh my gosh better than Turton are you serious so why why Peter Van Maastricht who in the heck is this guy why did you get interested in him why should people who listen to this care about who Maastricht is well Maastricht is a what I would call a scholastic theologian of the late 17th century He's working in the context of the Dutch Reformed Church. He's working in the context of the three forms of unity. 
so he's he's right in the in the middle of a confessional um, understanding of theology. He's working in a reformed environment. He's most known for his work at the University of Utrecht, where he was from about 1670 until 1706. Um, he's a tremendous figure as far as his discussions of preaching and the importance of practice and practical preaching. Yeah. One of the things, if you're familiar with volume one of this work, um, Maastricht has a pretty unique, or maybe if not unique, a very interesting point that happens in both his first edition of this work and his second edition. In, um, in a standard Reformed the theology, you start with some sort of statement of what your first principles are. And frequently, uh, that is the doctrine of scripture. And then you go into a discussion of theology. From there, you start in on a, on a discussion of God and his works. What Maastricht has in this um, discussion, in the first edition, he put at the very front, like the, the introduction to the prolegomena. So if the prolegomena could have a prolegomena, Maastricht made sure that it was about, that you knew that the purpose of theology and this sort of discussion was for preaching. Hmm. So he had a discussion of the method of preaching in his first edition. Mm. In his second edition, it, he, he moved that. Um, that discussion about the best method of preaching was moved to the end of the work. So I take that to mean that he, he, was, he was always trying to figure out where's the best place to put the discussion about preaching. Do you put it before the seminaries learn anything to remind them that what you're doing is actually doing this for the people of God? Yeah. Or do you put it at the end of a theological treatise so that you remind people that after the last thing they heard that you need to be able to go preach? Hmm. So there's a way of thinking about Maastricht's, um, the way that he moved this issue of where to put the best method of preaching. It really shows me that at the end of the day, this scholastic theologian, this academic theologian is quite honestly very concerned hmm. that preaching would be done well. And it, that theology would be studied in order to work among God's people. Hmm, yeah. So his role as a practical theologian is is, is tremendously important. Hmm. Yes, I mean, even kind of digging into that further, if people think about reformers, we've had some episodes on the reformers before too, um, but they might think of them as some ivory tower theologians who aren't really concerned about the people of God. Uh, they hear about some people, but they're like, oh, we need the intensely practical theologians. The theology is okay, but let's make sure they're practical. But it, it seems like Maastricht is try not trying to, he's not saying, oh, these two are separate and belong together, but he's he's saying something a little bit different where like they, they're both like feed each other in some sense. Is that is that right? That's right. He actually has a point in that work called The Best Method of Preaching where he, he charges seminarians and pastors in general um, not to use all of their time in their sermon just on exegesis. Mm. Uh, he, he charges them to get to practice so that people know what to do with it. Uh, if people leave your sermon and to go, wow, that was great exegesis, but they don't know how to use it. Maastricht would say, he would use these words, you've stultified your hearers. Hmm. So his charge there is that, yes, of course you do deep, rich theology, but you have to, you have to do it in a way that you're, your people can remember it. So he does encourage the use of rhetoric. He does encourage the use of, um, we might say, alliteration and mnemonic devices. Yeah, yeah. Um, he wants he wants his 
he wants noblemen and he wants, uh, you know, the baker uh, to go out from the sermon and be able to remember the sermon, because if they don't remember the sermon, then they're not going to remember how to apply it. Hmm. Uh, so one of the things for him was um, he wants, he wants, not only does he want rich theology, but he wants rich preaching. And part of, for him, rich preaching means you have to understand the text, but you also have to apply it well, and you have to apply it closely to your people in a way that they can remember it. Yeah. So that alone is, it just is a nice piece to remember whenever he says, okay, theology is so that you can know what's true about God. But then also he's concerned about, knowing how to use it. And that really sets up, I think, the uniqueness in some ways, or if not uniqueness, I think it's unique to us. It's not necessarily unique to the 17th century. But he's, he starts a discussion about what is theology. Is it theoretical only? Is it practical only? And that's where the title, this mouthful, theoretical practical theology comes from. He says it's both. You have to have um, you have to have a content of knowledge that's true, that you know, and then you have to have something that you're applying. So every head of theology in his um, systematic treatise, it has a section that has it starts with exegesis. It then moves to a positive development of doctrine, mm-hmm. and then from there he moves to what he calls elenctics. We would probably say polemics. Mm -hmm. If there's a positive statement of theology, that is, you have to put something forward. This is what the scriptures teach. Then there's also something you have to defend. Mm -hmm. Um, So a linktix for him is pointing out where people might differ or have objections. Yeah. And then the last part of it is about practice. So Mm -hmm. every head of theology for him has that fourfold element to it. Um, You know, someone might say, well, how do I practice the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, his answer to that would be, well, knowing these things, this should help us understand comfort. Mm. So there's a there's the the practice of some of these works. Um, it could be something as simple as um, understand this is true and take comfort in it. Mm. In our day and age, when somebody says, "I want you to go practice something," somebody says, "Okay, wh- what is the what is the activism I need to engage in?" Mm-hmm. Or for Maastricht. Um, it might include the way that you live with your neighbor and family, but it's also about framing your mind and framing your heart so that you can pray, so that you can think, so that you can act. Hmm. Yeah, and a lot of people um, might not know, or Maastricht might be a new, newer name to them. And that's not because he wasn't a fantastic theological giant, because he was. So I want you to explain why this work, this seven-volume work, is extremely long-awaited and unique to today, and what, what it's bringing to the Christian world. What, what did you uh, bring to the table here, what, this long-awaited work? There's a, this is a wonderfully rich um, question. And I'll just point out a few things that I, I think it would be helpful for people to realize. Maastricht is writing at the end of the 17th century. He's writing within 50 years of some of the last great reformed confessions of the 17th century. And he's thinking through in a very robust, 
transnational way about what it means to be reformed. So he's engaging Swiss and German and French and British and Dutch reformed thinkers. And along the way, he's engaging Anabaptists and Socinians and Remonstrants, uh, Lutherans, Roman Catholics, uh, those he refers to as enthusiasts or sometimes Schwenkfeldians or sometimes um, sometimes Brownists, as the way they're referred to in, in England in, in that day. So what you get is a, is a snapshot of who the Reformed conversation, um, who the interlocutors in a Reformed conversation about theology, who those people are, um, and which is a really nice bridge for getting out of the 17th century and into the 18th. Uh, one of the things that you have that's happening in this time frame is not just an argument among different confessions. There's new approaches to science. There's new approaches to philosophy. There's new approaches to logic and truth in this period. Um, it's the rise of the deists in, in some ways. Maastricht, this work was published in 1698. And so Maastricht is right at the beginnings. He's writing at, at the end of his life but it's in the beginnings of those deep rumblings over deism yeah. and 18th century enlightenment thought. And so Maastricht sees some of those issues and some of those tremors, and he's, he's kind of a watchman on the wall at that point. So by getting into Maastricht, uh, what you find is you'll find a very deep engagement with the 17th and 16th century reformed thinkers. Um, and he's engaging across a, a wide variety of topics, not just the usual suspects, so to speak. Um, the, the volume three that we're, we're publishing in December um, deals with the, the works of God. So you're dealing with the question of, um, you deal with the actions and decrees of God. Um, and then it goes all the way through creation and fall. So we work through all the major topics on, you know, providence, predestination, um, election, all of these sorts of questions. So volume three is deals a lot with the questions surrounding election and reprobation. In the 16th and 17th century, a lot of the questions surrounding predestination culminated in arguments between infra and supralapsarians uh, among the reformed, as well as those outside of the reformed orbit. So it's questions about what is the nature of salvation and what is the nature of God's election. And Maastricht is engaging with all of these different views and parsing through, here's what, here's what, here's what an infralapsarian is, is, is trying to do. Here's what a superlapsarian is trying to do. What are the things that we can see biblically are profitable in each of these different approaches? And he's seeking to resolve it along those lines. Um, there's also debates in this time frame about how exactly Christ saves us. Hmm. And some of the conversations that are happening in this volume on predestination are going to snowball into the next volume on the person and, uh, and work of Christ. That's volume four, which will be a subsequent volume out, I mm -hmm. believe, about 12 to 15 months from now. Gotcha. Yeah, and even, even with the, so while he's writing this, and you were talking before recording, this is something I think the, the audience, uh, it's an interesting thing to, to learn for the audience. So we think, of professors taking sabbaticals to write books or long volumes and stuff. So they take time off of their, their regularly scheduled classes to, to really focus on a work. But that's that's not how 
Maastricht wrote this, if, if you can describe kind of this, this process of writing this book, it, it kind of changes your perspective on, on how these books are written. Sure. Uh, Maastricht's work and these handbooks of theology, like this theoretical practical theology, uh, is, is very similar to the way that it was written. Say, for example, Turidan wrote his work this way. Mm-hmm. And, and what it is, is these are lecturing professors and they're lecturing professors on the text of scripture. And out of their exegesis, they are doing their doctrinal development. They're doing the, um, the engagement polemically and systematically. And so first and foremost, these theologians are exegetes. Uh, Maastricht is primarily um, a Hebraist in his um, training and in his, uh, ex- his specialization. But as he works through a text of scripture, he would lecture through this in class day in and day out. And his students would, would I imagine, take down notes as rapidly as possible. Out of this, um, in these lectures, it was not uncommon for Maastricht to propose theses. These are the things that I think you should know. Mm-hmm. He would make claims that he would then defend. Students would write those down. Um, every so often, they would engage in something called disputations. Some of these were practice disputations that the students did for their own training. Um, you know, the student would come forward with some of the theses from the lectures and would defend those publicly. And Maastricht would stand pretty close by, um, like imagine standing at a podium and then your professor is standing on a podium that's a little bit higher than yours behind you. Yeah. And, and what's happening is, is your colleagues are, um, your classmates are sometimes tasked with the unenviable position of giving the counter case. Hmm. So you would do a presentation, someone else would rise and ask questions and you would have to respond and answer. And this was part of the training of theology, theology students. Well, these exercises were, were built on what are called disputations. After two decades, if you bundle those disputations and put them in order, that's the theoretical practical theology. Uh, it totals out to, in English, probably about 1.7 million words. Um, and that represents about 20 years of Maastricht's work. That is an incredible amount of... Tremendous <laughs> amount of labor. Yeah. Um, uh, to put this in perspective, Turidan, which has been out for some time, if you read yeah. his preface really closely, what you'll find in Turidan's preface is he tells you, one, that his students were going to publish his textbook without him. Yeah. So the reason he's apologizing is because he rushed this work to get it into print so that it got out there before his students published his work. Yeah. Um, so he also mentions in there that he wishes he would have had space to do a practical application of yeah. the questions, which is exactly what you have in Maastricht. Mm-hmm. So it's not that Maastricht is inventing a form mm-hmm. of, yeah. of theology, but he's doing it in a pretty standard way. Commentaries on scripture from this time frame worked in a similar way. Uh, the most interesting and exhaustive treatment I've ever seen on Isaiah 53 is a 1200 page commentary. Oh my gosh, yeah. One chapter by a Dutch Reformed theologian um, where he basically goes through disputations with his students. Oh, is that Ventringa or whatever his last name is? Ventringa? Yeah, I think think that's the, I think that's the work. Yeah. And um, what that means is, is that this, these were not only lectures in class, but these were um, his, he was going to teach all the heads of theology out of Isaiah 53 in the course oh, of a year and a half in seminary. 
Mm. So, so imagine that you go to you go to seminary and your prof walks in and says, you're going to learn all the heads of theology and I'm going to use Isaiah 53 as a launch pad. Which is a great chapter, but it's that, yeah, yeah it's, you, you wonder, yeah, am I going to get, am I going to get sick and tired of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant after a year? Never, never. Right. The, this is not the 19th century artist. This is not the our 19th century artist or author who, go, you know, retires to the countryside and maybe goes to the beach and writes in their, you know, in their leisure in the afternoon. Yeah. Um, Maastricht's work is built totally around the day in and day out, nine mm-hmm. to five sort of approach. To teaching theology, hmm. um, bundle that together over twenty years, and that's a work like this. That's all right. The, yeah. Oh, the and days, the days before Netflix and social media, what people could get done, <laughs> right? Seriously. Yeah, it's no longer Netflix. You have a professor breathing down your neck, making sure that you don't get anything wrong. Well, I guess yeah. both would be interesting in a sense. If you were a seminarian in this period, you probably yeah. were boarding with one of your professors. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you're in, in Leiden or Utrecht, you were probably a, a resident with someone in the town, or you were uh, living in the home with the professor. And if you were doing, if you were living with the professor in their very own home, not only did you have kind of a group of other guys there with you studying theology and working through seminary, but the prof is knows when dinner is, and he's studying with you, reviewing with you um, after after dinner conversations were probably something, some element or aspect of either something you've learned or something you that's been debated. Um, that aspect of theology you can see in, say, for example, Arminius had public and private disputations. Okay. The private disputations were these documents of, if you will, tutor sessions outside of the stated hours of class. Mm-hmm. So it was no Netflix and no chill. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had to do it in a different. You had to. You had to perhaps seek it in a different way. Yeah, chill. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, chills. Yeah, they understood chill differently than we do now. It was just cold. That's the only thing that was chill. Was just, <laughs> That's right. right. Yeah. Um, but this work was primarily published in Latin. Um, yeah. yeah. In, in, in seventeen, in sixteen ninety eight, it was published again in seventeen fifteen. Uh, there was another uh, reprint in seventeen twenty four. Um, the first Dutch edition of it occurs uh, within 40 years of Maastricht's death, and it's not Maastricht's Dutch, it's someone else's Dutch. Hmm. Um, so it's a Dutch translator in the mid-18th century. Okay. Um, people that knew of Maastricht in the 19th century, someone like Bobink knew of Maastricht. Mm-hmm. Um, I think until the Dutch Reformed Translation Society took on this project, the only thing you could really find of Maastricht's in English was uh, a bit of his own regeneration. Hmm. His preaching book came out not that long ago, right, too? The, that's right. Um, that's the, I forget what it was called. Uh, well, it was t- entitled The Best Method of Preaching. Best Method, that's um, right. And that little piece came out as a, um, I, I think that was 2013, um, yeah. was whenever I did, whenever that translation came out. We've bundled that into volume one hmm. um, in this particular version. And then volume two deals with faith. And then what is saving faith is how this volume two opens up. And then after that is a discussion of God and his attributes. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the chapter in volume three that I think is perhaps the most, um, will probably seem the most foreign to moderns is uh, Maastricht's treatment of the doctrine of creation mm. in part because he's engaging the latest, greatest 17th century science. 
So that's the part that in one sense you have to look at, okay, what are the doctrinal commitments he's putting forward and look at the, um, look at his conversation partners who are, who are still questioning certain aspects of creation and other things, but it's an argument in some ways between philosophy of science and theology. Um, Maastricht is not arguing, not arguing directly with science per se. He's arguing with various philosophies of science that yeah. have, that he has concerns about their, not only their conclusions, but also their methods mm. and their, some of their philosophical commitments. Yeah. So you, you translated all seven of these volumes and the just volumes for the audience. In, oh, go ahead. The seven volumes are in process. Yeah. yeah. So, so explain to the audience what you're translating and why this is really big news for us that are in the English speaking world. Well, yeah, why, yeah, why effectively, why hasn't it been translated until now? And well, I, yeah, what got you interested in, like kind of on top of next questions too? Uh, well, the first thing I would say is, is anytime you have a major translation project like this, it's the work of a community. Yeah. Uh, if you look at, for example, the reason why we have John Calvin's commentaries, it's not because uh, one person got up one morning and said, hey, I think it's important for us to translate through all of Calvin's commentaries. No, that was a group project and a, and a community and a society, a translation society that built up supporters to do something like this. And so what makes the Maastricht project possible uh, is the support of, some, of the Dutch Reform Translation Society. Um, that's the funding agency behind this. It's a group, it's a nonprofit, of course, and it's aiming at putting forward good, solid pieces of Dutch Reform theology that help us understand the Dutch Reform heritage. Um, if you're familiar with the Bobbing translation, uh-huh. that Bobbing translation was funded by the Dutch Reform Translation Society. So the, the point to make is, is that anytime you have a major piece of theological recovery, there's a society or network of people behind it supporting it. Mm-hmm. But the Dutch Reformed Translation Society have been looking for someone to translate uh, Maastricht since probably, I think I've got the history right, but since around 2000 and 2001. Wow. Okay. Um, and then I started on that project. Um, I was on that project in January of 2009 and um, have been translating through that. We, we will, I believe, um, yeah, so volume one um, was in draft form by 2011. <laughs> uh, volume two was in draft form by, I think, 2013, 2014-15 for volume three and four. Hmm. But yeah, I mean, the, the piece is coming along. It's just there's a lot of work to do on the editing. Yeah, tremendous amount of footnotes in here, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. Um, Maastricht has a habit of citing, well, he'll cite a German writer in Latin. (laughs) He'll he'll translate it into Latin and then cite that to you. Oh, my gosh. So finding that quote, uh, let's go backwards from the Latin into the German. Yeah, yeah, that's not easy. Yeah, it it takes a bit. So... um, that gives you a little bit about where this comes from. It comes from the, it comes from the mission of the Dutch Reform Translation Society. Um, and I became interested in it in, in around 2008, 2009 was whenever I started in, in on this project. Hmm. And we've had to build a team um, around this project. So it takes, it's, it takes a lot of folks working on this in order to make this possible. It's not just, uh, translation is not just the work of a lone ranger. Uh-huh. It takes a team to do it. And that yeah. takes 
and coordination. So it's, you know, by God's grace, it's just, it, it takes, it just takes effort. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, um, but as far as the significance of Maastricht and why he hasn't been translated before, well, remember in the Netherlands, I think the last Dutch, the last Latin dissertation in, in, the, in a Dutch university was in the early 20th century. So in an, envi- in an academic environment where your, your theology is being conducted, even if it's vernacularly in Dutch, the, the students are still reading Latin. Um, and so one point to make is part of the reason why this has perhaps never been translated before is because the education environment up through the mid to early 20th century was still being conducted with a high level of Latin. Hmm. And once your educational requirements have changed, it's taken two or three generations, maybe four, for people to no longer read it in their normal training. So that makes the translation task necessary. Hmm. Um, that's one of the challenges and opportunities for uh, reform scholars today. I mean, it's some of the things that I know that Dr. Clark at um, Westminster in California, and I know myself at Westminster Philly, we emphasize um, learning the original languages and oh, yeah. read this material, yep. not, only, not only for the scholars out there, but for pastors to appropriate the commentary heritage of the reformed, there's, there's always need for more languages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there that hasn't been translated yet, that's got theological fruit that we just haven't dug into going into the scriptures, which is why I think this translation on, on Maastricht, who we haven't read before, a lot of English readers, or all English readers haven't read before because he's only been in Latin. Um, it, yeah, it opens up. And I mean, there's, I, I forget what percent, we have such a small percentage actually translated of these reformed writers because they're all wrote in Latin or, or French or, or whatever it may be. We just we don't have the resources, don't have the manpower, don't have the people to, to translate all this stuff that we can still drink from both pastors and theologians. It, it really is a it really is a, 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 an amazing sort of thing to ponder that over the last 250 years, as churches have grown in different countries, the educational needs of those different congregations and the educational needs of those different seminaries has, has moved in different directions. In, in many ways. Um, as far as Maastricht is concerned, you can find him cited throughout the 19th century among the Dutch. Hmm. Um, obviously there's the, the Edwards quote yep. um, that's, that's used. That's a great, um, that's a great plug for Maastricht. Um, <laughs> yeah. Better than Puritan, yeah. To give you a, a, a little bit of history on that quote, um, Edwards was trying to get together a book order to share shipping with a colleague. Huh. And they're looking at the same catalog out of Scotland, I believe. And um, his comment to him in a letter is, you know, hey, I see they have Maastricht. If you don't have that, you should get that. Uh, um, and it's, it, he's putting it together as far as a shipping order. But it, uh, he's, he's commending it to him, not only on the basis of the theology, but I think what Edwards appreciated perhaps most out of Maastricht is the theological method that moves from text to doctrine to defense of the faith to practice, hmm. maybe not in every sermon, but that was the four moments um, within within an exegetical process that, that Master would commend. And I think Edwards really appreciated that. Knowing that you're probably introducing a lot of our audience and a lot of the church to Master for the first time, which is 
pretty amazing. Um, and, and just maybe explaining a little bit more about him as a, as a person and a pastor and a theologian, maybe a little bit deeper than just this four pronged approach that you were going through. Sure. What was his style? What was, what kind of made him tick? What, what was he having a lot of polemics against? What was, um, what was his hope for the church? You know, all those kind of things. Sure. Maastricht's family, um, his grandfather actually had moved from the city of Maastricht on the Moss River, or if you're if you're inclined to the French name of the river, the Meuse River. And in the late 16th century, early 17th century, um, one of the things that happens is there's a there's a stream of refugees out of Maastricht after it had been sacked by the Spanish. Um, and Maastricht's family was in that. His family name was actually something different. And the, they took on the name Maastricht when they moved to Maastricht, when they moved to Germany. Um, and it was in that context. He was raised as a Dutch reformed, um, he's re raised in a Dutch reformed family in a Dutch reformed church in a German city. Mm. Um, so he's, he's German as a second language kind of a environment. Um, his congregation was deeply committed to um, reformed experiential preaching. Mm -hmm. This is evidenced by the fact that Johannes Hornbeek, who is known as a practical theologian among the Dutch, um, Johannes Hornbeek was actually his childhood pastor. Hmm. So Maastricht grew up in a, in a, in a, in a fervent, godly home. Um, when he goes to Utrecht, um, he originally went, there. there's a joke in the Dutch, but, and I'll, I'll give it to you in a second, but <laughs> the, um, he originally went to, he went to Utrecht to study uh, or to have his foot treated. Maastricht had, was born with some, um, so with some imperfection in his foot that caused him trouble with his walking. Hmm. Um, so he was go looking, he was headed to Utrecht to deal, to, to meet a doctor about his foot. And instead, he met Doctor Footsius. Uh, <laughs> wow, that's, uh, I, I could see the smile forming before you made the joke. It's like this was gonna be a good one. Was yeah, that, yeah. Was so, that on purpose? Is that providential? Heispertus Heispertus Footsius was was a was a was a major theologian. He's sometimes been described as the John Owen of the Dutch, um, mm -hmm. and he's right in the middle of the Nadera Reformatie or the Dutch Further Reformation movement in the 17th mm -hmm. century. Um, Footsius was at the Synod of Dort um, as a delegate, uh, or as at least in attendance as a minister, um, and then as the founding systematics professor at Utrecht in the 1630s. Um, Maastricht is trained under him and Hornbeek and others at Utrecht in a very serious, um, strong form of um, theology. And then from there, after he graduates, um, he goes on to, to serve as a pastor um, in several places. Perhaps the most interesting of which was he was a uh, Dutch Reformed theologian in a German Reformed slash Lutheran church. Hmm. So he's in, he's 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 in an environment. Uh, by, by the time you get into the middle portion of his life, he's in an environment where there's, there's Dutch reform, there's reformed folk in the congregation. He's a reformed pastor putting forward a reformed understanding of uh, theology and of the scriptures. And he has people in his midst that are Lutherans as well. 
in that context, he was known as um, a very intelligent, a very cogent, persuasive preacher. Um, he was known for his preaching in that context. Um, there was a German prince who had a, he was Lutheran and he had a reformed wife. And she would sometimes attend uh, Maastricht's church huh. when, he, when he taught in that environment. Um, from there, he was invited because he was known as an Irenic reformed scholar. He was invited to be a professor of Hebrew at Frankfurt uh, from 1667 to 1670. He then moves on to Duisburg, Germany and becomes a professor of theology there from 1670 to 1677. And then he fills in Flitzius's chair uh, after Flitzius died. Uh, Maastricht was then selected as a professor of theology and he served there from 1677 to 1706. Hmm. Um, so did he fill Footsius's shoes? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to throw that in there. I was, I had to I do was it. waiting for that. I'm sorry, I had to do it. Go on. <laughs> That's the, you know you have two dads on a show and you get two dad jokes. <laughs> one right after the other. Me and, me and Rester will just go back oh and forth. Oh my gosh, that'll be fun. That, one, that one's good. Yeah, that one wasn't expecting it, but that's good. Towards the end, so Maastricht never married. Um, he was um, he was just a, known as a faithful, um, godly. I did not know he was not married. Yeah, he was known as a faithful, godly um, theologian and pastor. Um, he died due to a slow infection in that foot that he had had so much trouble with over the course of his life. Um, by the time that 1702 rolled around, he was not able to teach standing up in front of class all the time. So he would teach mostly from his house. Hmm. Um, students would come to his house for lectures and he would teach there. He died in 1706. Um, and he died as a respected and loved member of his academic community. But it, he was, a, my impression is, is he was a modest man. Um, he was a known quantity, but he was not, um, he wasn't perhaps the most powerful personality in the room. Within 20 years of his death, the, um, the scholarships that he had set up from his estate were, you know, mo he, was, he had set up various endowments for students and seminarians to continue their studies at Utrecht. Uh, the beneficiaries of those endowments didn't know who he was. Hmm. So I don't know if that speaks to his modesty or the yeah. fact in his context, um, after 1706, the, his understanding of theology was, was already um meeting a pretty strong headwind with the enlightenment mm, interesting okay but his his academic interests um i would say first and foremost he's a student of the hebrew text um secondly i would say his emphasis on practical theology as a, and godliness mm -hmm. um and then he has some pretty strong engagement philosophically with cartesians he sees in Descartes' methodological doubt a severe challenge to Christianity. Hmm. And he's, he he's basically writes a work that this is not this is not a book that's going to fly off the shelf at Barnes and Noble or uh, on Amazon. Um, but the name of his book in, translates as the gangrene of the Cartesian innovations. <laughs> or maybe it will fly off the shelves just for just for that title. Yeah. The reason it's an interesting book is because what he does is he goes through all the heads of theology, like a systematic theology. But he goes through all the major heads of theology and shows how Cartesianism messes them up. Hmm. 
So what he's doing there is he's doing it's it's totally in the political tone. But first and foremost, he sees it as a challenge to the nature of, you know, if your primary motive is doubt and how you learn to know things. Um, there's a classic critique among the reformed of Cartesian doubt that if you start in doubt, how will you ever arrive at certainty? Mm. And so pastorally, that's what got him into the Cartesian issue is if people are always forced to doubt, then how will they ever come out of that? So he's very concerned about the nature of faith and the nature of doubt. And he sees that as a major philosophical challenge moving forward mm. from the 1670s onward. Um, his major, his first, um, well, you might call it his dissertation, his doctoral dissertation um, was primarily on how we understand practice as walking hand in hand with theory. Hmm. Uh, that was a piece that was published, I guess, in 1668. Um, and it's his, it's his address. He has an inaugural oration uh, that he gives at Frankfurt along those same lines on how um, theology, theory and practice have to walk together in theology. So he's got some methodological concerns there as well that, again, point to the, the intentionality of faith. Hmm. Um, so if you wanted to understand his thinking, um, he defines theology as the, um, the science or the art of living for God mm. through Christ. Um, so it's a, it's a Christological focus. He's, he sees you have to push people towards not only saving faith, but you have to shepherd them towards saving faith, but you have to, to focus that in on the work, the person and work of Christ. Um, that's a tremendous part of his um, theology, as of course it should be in a Christian theology. Mm -hmm. But it's um, it's a, it's also a major part of his discussion um, in all of his in all of his different writings. So part of the reason, you know, for example, if in his discussion in Volume Three on um, sin, one of the things that he he mentions even in passing. Is that if we don't understand the, the if we don't understand original sin rightly, then we won't understand the way that Christ saves us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, before before we close up anything, so I know <clears throat> so there's there's seven volumes planned for this, and Lord willing, by the time this interview comes out, volume three is out. So if you can describe just not not obviously quickly, but um, kind of in a brief summary form, what, what are the first three volumes about and then the next four that are coming out and kind of how how Maastricht sees these building off of each other? Because um, it's, it's not the normal order I think a lot of Christians think when it comes to seven volumes of the systematic. Well, we're, we're, we're governed by the, we're governed by the German three volume model, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Bart saying there's, this is volume, you know, all, if you just remember that Bart's are only, Bart only has three volumes. They're just all parts, right? Yep. Um, in all those different volumes. <laughs> yeah. um, but the way that he thinks through this is um, he starts in volume one on what is the nature of theology and how do we think about knowing God? Mm -hmm. Um, so it's the importance of revelation. It's the importance of um, scripture. And, and then he gets into a discussion of what is the discipline of theology and how should you think about it? That's volume one. Volume two 
um, is primarily, as I mentioned, it starts on the doctrine of saving faith and it moves through all of the attributes of God. Um, and that, that, that particular portion is, I think it's about 27 chapters mm-hmm. in that particular volume. It's about 200 and, um, it's probably about 250,000 words. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's probably about a 650 page book. Yeah. It's volume two, uh, volume three, which is coming out in December is about the works of God. So this is things like predestination, election, and reprobation, mm-hmm. um, creation and uh, creation in six days. He has a discussion in there on providence and election. And it's in this particular volume that he sets up the with creation. He also discusses what he calls uh, the, the covenant of nature. Mm. Um, and that, and then the last part of this particular volume closes out with what is the fall. So what is the violation of the covenant of nature? Mm. What is the nature of original sin? What is the nature of actual sin? And then what is the punishment and um, what happens? What is the, what is the punishment of sin and what is the state of sin? Hmm. So he's setting up all of those discussions about the covenant of grace, which will be in volume four. Hmm. Um, Volume four is totally taken up with the discussion of the mediator. Um, Volume four will be about 18 chapters. And it will move from the discussion of the covenant of grace and the mediator of the covenant of grace all the way through, um, I would say, about 14 chapters on the person and work and offices Mm. um, of Christ. It also talks about basically his humiliation, his life, his humility. How does it it go? His humiliation, his incarnation, his life, his death, his uh, descent. Mm-hmm. Um, the exaltation in general, his resurrection, his ascension, and then uh, what this session at the right hand of God is. Yeah. So that's the that's volume four. Um, volume five um, will move into a discussion of the the the, the application of redemption. So this mm-hmm. is all the classic topics. What is the nature of calling? What is the nature of regeneration? Um, you know, and, and how these several benefits of union with Christ work. So before he gets into a discussion of justification, for example, he talks about what union with Christ is. Mm. So he talks about vocation, regeneration, and conversion. Those are all very important moments. Yep. But then from there, he talks about union with Christ. Then, then you're into the standard reformed headings, right? Justification, yep. adoption, sanctification, glorification. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in that same chapter. It's in that same volume that we talk about the nature of the church. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. The largest chapter in the whole book, like all seven volumes, mm-hmm. <laughs> he has one chapter when he talks about the covenant of grace and he works through from, you know, here it is from, um, under the patriarchs here. It is under Moses here. It is under Christ. The largest, the single largest chapter in the whole seven volumes is uh, his discussion of um, his discussion of the covenant of grace from the resurrection of Christ to the end of the world. And that's where his church history comes in. That one chapter is probably about 156,000 English words. Oh my gosh. That's a book. Yeah. One chapter, a book. That's a dissertation and a half for anybody. Yeah, seriously. That's a fascinating topic, though. 
Yeah, um, but I mean, what else? Yeah, what else to have 156,000 yeah. word chapter than the church? Well, and what he what he what he's doing in that chapter, if you if if you trace him through, is he's working through how we understand the work of Christ in redemption, and then what's going on in human history. Mm. Huh. And what are the themes and issues, the recurring issues in human history that it's, you know, some people have said uh, history repeats itself. I take more of a view that given the stability of human nature, history tends to rhyme. Huh. <laughs> uh, there's things yeah. in history where it's not exactly the same thing, but there's sure. similarities. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good way to put it. Yeah. And then the last, uh, I would say the last two volumes are dealing with questions of what's known as moral theology. Hmm. Um, he's dealing with what you, what you might call virtues and vices. Hmm. Um, and then the last, the very last volume in that regard is also dealing with um, more pra- what's called the, what he calls the exercise of godliness, hmm. um, where it's ask, asking questions about, you know, in the lived experience of the church, what is the nature of godliness? What is the nature of spiritual, you might say, laziness or, in his words, inertia? Right. You know, so what the difference, so spiritual inertia for him would be someone being sluggish. Compare that to the practice of godliness, which is active. Hmm. Right. So you can see he's, he's working through things like that. So he's, it's a, it's a, he will tell you in his preface that he wishes he would have had more time to develop, um, the part two and part three of his work oh my gosh yeah the seven volumes just isn't enough right yeah 1.5 million words just got him through about volume one that's you know part one right not volume one but part one um and i think one of the things that you see in him that's definitely a mark of his age and it's something that would be of perhaps use for us to to consider more deeply yeah there's tremendous points that he's making theologically um, he's kind of mapping out what the lay of the land is in Reformed theology at the end of the 17th century and in the 18th century. Um, but he's really thinking through what does it mean to practice godliness in his environment? Hmm. And how does that, what, what shape does that take? And when you understand the themes and issues that he's bringing forward on matters of Christian godliness, then I think you can see the analogs perhaps in our own day. Hmm. it's not yeah. going to be exactly the same. You know, there's elements in Maastricht. You're not going to be able to pick a, you know, just cut and paste into the modern conversation, but the themes and issues are, might be the same. Yeah. It's a variation on that sort of question. Um, by the time you get to the end of this volume, this set of volumes, he's doing a lot of, um, he's doing a lot of discussion on, um, working out your piety, working out your godliness on a day-to-day basis. Mm. So the, 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 the shape of the book starts with what is the nature of theology, and it, terms it, 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 it terminates at the end on what does it mean to live this theology out. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, he kind of wraps different. it up with your sanctification, how to live out your sanctification. He kind of wraps it up with that. I would say so. I mean, and of course, he's always doing this in context of, um, you know, how are we living this out before God and how are we living this out before our neighbor? Yeah. Yeah, um, it's a different way, a different way of doing it um, than you, because uh, your average 
Christian, if they read systematic theology, thinking the end of the book is eschatology, so last things or maybe something else, but you very rarely, if ever, think, oh, let's talk about ethics. Let's talk about how do we live this stuff out, which is a different approach, but also um, I, I think extremely helpful when you're reading this at the end of this, okay, so what do I do with this information that you're, that you've been telling me, even though I think he's been applying it the whole, the whole way through. That's right. I mean, he does something where he, he, he does a, he does this discussion of the nature of the church and where that discussion ends is actually on the governance of the church. Hmm. After he's talked about what is the nature of sacraments, what is the nature of discipline? What is the nature of governance? That's where his discussion of the nature of the church ends. Everything he does after that, is a discussion of the, the outworking of the covenant of grace in history. Yeah. So that's where the, that's why those chapters are so thick hmm. as um, well, he's going to go from the resurrection of Christ until covering a lot of ground. Yeah. <laughs> Need 156,000 words to cover that, to cover that ground. <laughs> well, yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and it's a, the thing that I would say that's also of, of perhaps interest here to various readers is the, the way that he works through a text as here's exegesis, here's doctrine, here's defense, here's mm-hmm. practice. Mm-hmm. There's points in there that are helpful with, with pastors preparing for sermons. Hmm. Yep. Yeah. You know, these are the... And, and the way we've laid out the book with the scripture index and these other things, you can see the way that he's building his exegesis and using these things. So there's a, there's a really interesting and helpful point. Every chapter flows out of the exposition of at least one passage or one verse of scripture. Mm. Hmm. Just shows how practical his teachings were. I mean, we could apply them today. Yeah, kind of like today. the title, theoretical practical. Yeah, right. I think and, I think he would rather you know. There, there's one way of thinking about this as a desk reference. Yeah, you know, it's yes, it's going to sit up, be on your shelf, but the the hope is is that it's going to be open in front of you on your desk yeah. as you're <clears throat> consulting various aspects of how do we think through these questions. Yeah, I mean, it's well, going to be 100 in front of my desk when I preach too. When I prepare sermons, this will be yeah, this will be one of the the first things I look at. And now that you. I mean, you read English, so it's easy for you to apply it. So <laughs> thank you for right. Dr. Rester for tra- no, just, translating it into the English. I, I got to get into Latin now. Goodness gracious. Come on, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, we, I, I got some books on Latin, so I'm trying to self-study some Latin stuff and do, doing some stuff at Westminster to, to help out too. Um, but even, so as we, as we end this out, talking about Maastricht and, and maybe his, uh, his influence on you. So I mean, you've been translating his whole work you're going to be translating his whole work so what what about Maastricht kind of sticks out to you that you didn't know coming into it that you that you want to impart in people's like hey think think about this when you think about Maastricht there's an old conversation in the discussion of theology about whether or not there was a debate um, an ongoing debate uh, is theology just simply a knowledge or is it a practice or in, in to split the difference is it a wisdom um, within the Reformed world of this period, 16th and 17th century, it was most common for uh, Reformed theologians to define theology either as a practice or as a wisdom. Mm-hmm. And a wisdom is, int- is an interesting way to define it because in that viewpoint, wisdom has a theoretical side to it. 
and wisdom has a practical side to it. So Maastricht is definitely resonating with, with someone like Hornbake, who says that theology is always practical. You know, whereas Maastricht talks about saving faith, his old pastor Hornbake would talk about the need to press into the kingdom of God. So I guess what I would say that I, what I've appreciated about Maastricht, not only is he solid in his reformed thinking, not only is he a careful exegete, he's urgent. Hmm. The most urgent thing before the people of God is that they know God. The worst thing in the world would be to spend your life studying about God hmm. and to never know God. Hmm. So Maastricht comes off in throughout, if you read him carefully and repetitively, um, it's a, there's always an urgency to the need to understand God. And to that end, Maastricht is not only urgent to call people to Christ, but he's urgent to, to encourage Christians to take comfort. Mm. So oftentimes, one of the, so oftentimes, the, the, the problems that people have in the faith are crises of assurance, yep. crises of certainty, yeah. crises of pastoral care. Um, and how do I know that I'm a believer? Yeah. And that's why I think Maastricht took so much time with the questions of practical theology at the end. He wants to give people a framework of diagnosis, but more than that, he wants to give them a framework of comfort. Mm. And that's why he's always directing them towards Christ. He's always directing them towards his word. He's always directing them to the work of the spirit in us to, to take confidence and hope and comfort in the word of God. Hmm. And I think that perhaps is the abiding utility of Maastricht. Yes, the theological arguments are going to rise and fall in some ways. Um, but there's going to be basic things that you have to get right. Who is, who is God? Who is Christ? What is the nature of sin? What is the nature of salvation? How do I live now? So I've appreciated that, I would say, in Maastricht's work. Um, just that, that always practical urgency of taking comfort in Christ. Yeah. Well, and that's why I think he puts his dogmatic part in, in the second part of his four-pronged approach, too, right after his exegetical part. So like he said exegetical then dogmatic and then he ends with practical yeah that's right yeah which is interesting because the most important i mean yes it's important to engage in the olympics the faith has to be defended the sheep have to be defended yeah right but at the end of his sections he's going to talk to the sheep <laughs> Yeah. And I think sometimes, dare I say that that is something that is needful in our preaching. Mm -hmm. You know, yes, defend the doctrines. Yes, articulate the truth. But ca call the heart of God's people to the heart of God. Mm. Yeah. 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 No, that's, that's good stuff. Yeah. <clears throat> it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's a pleasure now having him in English. For those, yeah. obviously, most most of us, if not, yeah, a good vast majority of us who don't read Latin, um, to have this finally in our hands, so we can read <clears throat> this guy who is so concerned about yes, precision theologically, precision exegetically, but it always terminates on how do we live this? How does this preach? How are the sheep going to be comforted by this? And so, I mean, I, I'm sure I can speak for Nick. So, 
I mean, us to thank you, and I'm sure a bunch of our readers, a bunch of our listeners um, would also thank you for translating this, the hard work of translating this. It's a team effort in this regard. I mean, it's, you know, there's not just, it's not just one person in this whole process. And that's something that I've been grateful for. I've been encouraged by it. Um, it, it, it's, it is a long process. It takes a lot of tenacity, um, to finish something like this. And it's just been, it's been a, a good experience to see Maastricht get into print. Yeah. Um, not only, yes. And not only that, thank you to Joel Beek for editing this too. <laughs> and editing the hundreds of books that he edits every single year. <laughs> Well, and, and I've been grateful for the support of the Dutch Reform Translation Society and for the people that have made that possible because, you know, um, you know RHB is taking the lead on, on, on printing it and publishing it and distributing it. But it's been the work of the Dutch Reform Translation Society to underwrite it and to make sure it happens. Yeah. And so to answer your earlier question, how do, um, how do projects like this get off the ground? The answer is is a is a is a well managed translation society that takes um, that stewards those funds and those gifts and those support to get something like this into um, into print. It takes vision uh, to see see a thing like this through. You know, this is going to take a decade, and it's worth yeah. it. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's and to encourage people. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it helps with with funding this uh, future projects too. Cause this will come out like two weeks before Christmas does. Um, but I would encourage people, if, you, if you're not buying this for yourself, buy it for your pastor, buy it for a professor or buy it for a friend, buy it for yourself, uh, get it in somebody's hands. who can both help the sheep, but also get into your hands. So you can, you can know theology a little bit better in, in the practical side and see how these two aren't two opposites, but they, they mutually feed each other. Um, so yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for, for coming on to talk about this work. I know, a million and a half words isn't easy to summarize, but um, <laughs> hopefully we got close to it in about an hour. Yeah, Peter, Nick, thank you again for for having me on. Um, yeah, it's 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 a it's a it's a it's a privilege and a and a treat uh, to to come out and to talk about some of the things that that are that are occupying my mind and thoughts um, on a day to day basis. Yeah, teaching. Um, so this is a this is a, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Are you looking for a reformed church in the Orange County, Santa Ana area? We'll be starting our study through the Book of Judges, as well as diving into Reverend Danny Hyde's Welcome to Reformed Church beginning weekly on December 2nd, which is a Thursday at 6.30 p.m. at 4th Street Market in downtown Santa Ana. If you'd like updates and information on joining our core group, email us at santaanareformed at gmail.com or... Head to either Guilt Grace Pod or Santa Ana URC on Twitter or find the link in the show notes to learn more. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast, Guilt Grace Gratitude. And we, as we've said before, we are bridging the gap to Reformed Christian Theology for your listening pleasure. So we would like to make sure this is enjoyed by others around the world and how to best do that is rate and review us on itunes yeah and you after you rate a review or instead of rate and review or doing everything all in once retweeting us on twitter 
liking us on Twitter, liking us on Instagram, following us on both of those platforms, because that actually puts in front of people's physical face this podcast, these guests, and most importantly, the gospel, the doctrines uh, that these guests are, are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. It helps get in front of more people. Amen. And hopefully you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing. And uh, after that, after tithing, if you have any means left over, please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy. As again, we bridge the gap to reform Christian <laughs> theology. Exactly. The yeah. And you guys can find that link on anchor our official anchor website if you just go on um, our social media links it'll it'll link you to that website it's also at the bottom of these this podcast show notes if you're on this podcast this specific episode scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes and you guys will find a link for this for three different options of donating so we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap pay for shipping get nicer stuff all for the focus of spreading the gospel further Yep, all for the kingdom of God. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you guys next time.